The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Thanks for joining us this morning. I am Catherine Zox, and I am your social worker with a microphone here on VoiceAmericaVariety.com. My host, co-host Lauren Beller is on vacation. I have two guests, though, that we're going to be talking to this morning. My first guest, who is already here, is author of Prostate Cancer Survivors Speak Their Minds, Advice on Options, Treatments, and After Effects. He co-authored the book with Dr. Arthur L. Burnett. My guest is Norman Morris, and he himself is a cancer survivor. Uh, those three little words, you have cancer, as we all know, can just strike terror into the heart of even the strongest men. Prostate cancer is the second leading cause of cancer death in American men, the second leading cause. And it can be a fear-provoking diagnosis and a disease that is very complicated to treat. So hence the book, Prostate Cancer Survivors Speak Their Minds, Advice on Options, Treatments, and After Effects by Arthur Burnett, MD, and Norman Morris. Um, maybe many of you know Norman. He uh, is a Temple graduate. He was in the U.S. Marine Corps as a broadcast correspondent, graduated from Northwestern University, um, and a newscaster in small and major market television and radio stations across the country. Uh, he was at CBS, producer, writer for NBC News, and Voice of America. Welcome to the show, Norman. Nice to have you on this morning. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, as you know, as 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 I said in the introduction, I mean, prostate cancer not only does it strike fear in the hearts of men, but also women, the the partners, the spouses, the, those women who are. Uh, whose husbands or or partners are, are diagnosed with prostate cancer? So, absolutely. Uh, tell us, and I'm going to stop talking. Believe it or not, um, <laughs> you wrote this book with Dr. Bennett. What was the purpose of writing the book? Obviously, you're a survivor yourself. A lot of personal stuff here, but uh, and and personal stories from other survivors. Uh, so, tell us a little bit about the the motivation or the uh, the impetus for writing this this book on prostate cancer. Well, it was, it was, this is kind of a, a, an interesting thing that happened. Uh, I think that after, in the majority of cases where, where, uh, where people go through prostate cancer and survive, you come away with a kind of an obligation uh, to help other men who have gone through the same thing, who will or are going through it, and, and their families. And uh, it all began when... Um, um, I called um, a good friend of mine, who used to be, uh, he's famous, the oral historian, um, Studs, uh, Studs Terkel, who um, said to me, uh, well, you're a survivor of prostate cancer, uh, when are you going to write a book about it? And I said, I had no intention of writing a book, I might write an article about my experience to help other guys, but, and Studs said, nope, you're going to write a book. And uh, it just sort of got me going. And 
one day I went to Johns Hopkins to see, you know, for a checkup and saw Dr. Burnett. And I said to him, you know, I'm thinking of writing a book about all of this. And Dr. Burnett said, well, you're not going to do it without me. And that's pretty much how how the, the, the whole partnership began. And I'll talk to you about the, a little bit about the genesis of the book. The first thing that any uh, prostate cancer patient is asked to do is to do his research. Once he gets over the, you know, the initial shock of, you know, I have cancer, the first thing you're going to do, you, you're going to start doing research, and you're going to go on the Internet, you're going to read books, you're going to talk to people, the idea being that you're going to try to find the best doctor and the best hospital for treatment that you can do. The, the, the problem that I found with reading a medical textbooks, and there are quite a number of excellent medical textbooks out there, the, the problem, problem with the medical textbook is that it's complex. It shows you how complex the disease is, and it will also... Um, give you a feeling of there's so, many, so much uh, complication, uh, so many con- conflicts. Um, you get so many know- choices, it sounds like. You're put in a position, here you are vulnerable, diagnosed with cancer, and then you have all of these, like, these uh, sort of life choices to make, it, it would seem. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But the question that, came, that question uh, was bothering me, and I thought, wait a minute. You know what we need here? We need a book that can somehow uh, tell you how you should come to your own decision. And I had spent my whole life on the road at CBS with uh, Charles Carroll doing interviews. And the idea came to me that we could write a book, first-person interviews with patients who had specific uh, problems and issues to deal with. First-person interviews. If we could write a book that would be sort of like um, a support group for people to read about, um, it would give them an idea of what mistakes people were making in their choices and what what successful steps they were taking to survive. Um, <clears throat> that was really the genesis of the book. Um, and Norman, let me ask you this because men, how did that's a daunting task it seems to me because there's a real gen, I think there are gender differences between men and women um, and I'm always bringing them up on my show, but particularly in this case when it comes to medical stuff and when it comes to this this kind of a diagnosis, when do men ever talk about being weak or or feeling weak or vulnerable and being diagnosed with this potentially life-threatening disease, getting these men to talk, or how did you yourself come to terms with, I think men are pretty good at researching like what the options are and, you know, the scientific part of it, but the whole psychological part of it. So, like, what happened to you when you when you heard the news or how did you hear it and what was your response? Well, uh, you're, you're absolutely correct. Men don't like to talk about health problems, and in particular, if you mention the word prostate cancer, half of them will walk out of the room. Uh, granted, the, they don't even know what a prostate is to begin with, but the answer to your question is when somebody says to you, you may have three years to live, 
that's going to straighten you up very fast. You're going to know what to do about it. And that's what happens to these guys. The minute they hear the words, you have cancer, um, they're going to pay attention. They're going to want to do their research. They're going to want to talk to people. Not every one of them is not. Is, is, I'm not saying that all men are like that, <clears throat> but they certainly get all shook up. And they're, if, if they're not going to do the, the research themselves, the first thing they do is they turn to either their wives or their partners, and they're saying, um, we got a problem here. Can you help me do this? But uh, I'm, my experience is that um, it's the women who really are behind these men, and, and, and they're the, the guiding force. They help them get involved. And first thing you know, um, these guys are right into the process of trying to learn what to do about it. The interesting thing is that the, once they survive, I'm telling you the first thing they want to do is they want to help other men. They want to join support groups or they want to form their own support groups. And you can't shut them up. Yeah. But, you know, I always, but Norman, what about this? I always, you know, like breast cancer, for instance, there's this, you know, you get women who are uh, racing for breast cancer and, and uh, wearing pink ribbons and, you know, they're out there and, 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 and trying to generate money for, for research and stuff. You don't see the same thing for men and prostate cancer. I mean, you don't see them out there, I, I don't think, as obviously, do we? No, you don't. And that's always been very mysterious to me. Uh, I think that uh, there probably are even more cases. Uh, I may be wrong, but I think there are more cases of prostate cancer uh, than there are, uh, believe it or not, with breast cancer. And and I've always been um, puzzled by the way that funding um, is so uh, so much less for for prostate cancer than than for breast cancer. It's what's required is a state of awareness. Now, the interesting thing that's happening with prostate cancer is <coughs> you get about two, almost 200,000 men a year who are uh, diagnosed with prostate cancer. That's a lot of men. That's like saying, um, you know, with the, the, the number who die, um, somebody told me, it's sort of like an airplane with 500 passengers on it going down every year. Uh, every week. That's a lot of people. Now, the interesting thing about prostate cancer is that it's a very slow-growing disease. <clears throat> and as we pointed out in this book, you don't, if, if you're careful, if you take, if you, uh, if you try to, to uh, uh, get a, a diagnosis early, um, you're going to survive. And, and uh, so the death rate is going to go down uh, as men are, are, are diagnosed. So then it's, it's real important to get the word out there for men to speak up, to become more comfortable, to be able to talk, because you even said, even when men are diagnosed and they are terrified that, you know, hey, you, somebody, a physician says to you, you have potentially three years left to live, it's still the women who come up and kind of are the motivating factor for making the choices and doing the research and kind of pushing the men which into into action I guess you would call it right and 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 also consider the fact that most of these cases um, happen uh, as a man grows older um, usually um, you'll find them mostly in, in starting in the 50s and 60s um, um, but but if 
if you realize that the boomer generation is is growing by leaps and bounds, uh, we can really expect that the number of cases that are diagnosed are, are going to increase with the population as, as it ages. Yeah, that's true, and I'm part of that boomer generation, so I'm always you know interested in these kinds of issues, obviously. Um, we're going to take a short break, but and we've been talking to uh, Norman Morris. He is author of Prostate Cancer Survivors Speak Their Minds, Advice on Options, Treatment, and After Effects. You have to get the book to get all of the information, obviously. Can't cover it all in this interview, but, you know, when we come back, I want to also talk about some of the like uh, some of the stuff that's associated with prostate cancer like incontinence and impotence things that men never want to talk about i'm katherine zox your social worker with a microphone we'll be back in a few minutes uh you're listening to voiceamericavariety.com don't go away Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Money. We love it. We hate it. And everything in between. You can be the master of your life and your own economics. Join Professor Laurie Lamantia each week for the program, Making Peace with Money. Laurie will help you realize the power to create fulfillment in your life and shed new light on your money madness. You'll learn how to make peace with money and feel the joy and freedom renewed in your life. Making Peace with Money is broadcast live every Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you need directions to solve financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Listening to the Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll free number is 866 472 5788. That number again is 866 472 5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone here on VoiceAmericaVariety.com. Uh, my guest today is Norman Morris, author of Prostate Cancer Survivors Speak Their Minds Advice on Opinions, Treatments, and after Effects, he co-authored the book with Arthur Bennett, Burnett, M.D. Uh, if you're just joining us, uh, Norm Morris is an award-winning, Emmy Award-winning journalist, producer of CBS News, and prostate cancer survivor. So um, this book is, talks about diagnosis, treatment, and mani the management of the disease. Um, uh, it's described as being an honest, very honest, insightful account 
from many men who have been there before, some very famous men. And, you know, Norm, I want to just read the thing that's on the back cover that Bob Schiffer, who I happen to uh, be a fan of, mm -hmm. uh, apparently he was a bladder cancer survivor. Right. That's right. And he says, I know firsthand how hard it is for men to talk about their diseases, especially below-the-belt diseases and That's how right true. he is. Uh, but this book, your book, shows us how to do just that, the first step in coping with and eventually, in eventually conquering any disease. Uh, he describes the book as needed, helpful, and at times inspirational. So... Um, I thought I'd read that because I think that whole issue of men talking about below-the-belt diseases is really a key here, um, and to really be able to be way. honest. Um, so let's some of the, the the let's talk about some of that stuff because sure. you know impotency, for instance. I mean, I think that's one of the. First, I mean, I've known several men who have been diagnosed with prostate cancer. I know there are a lot of different options for treatment, but uh, that concern about impotency that's a big one and something that men don't even like to mention the word right 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 well the the two let me let me give you a little quick background um the prostate is a very strange gland um it uh from what we know about the prostate its basic function is to help keep the urinary tract clear of disease um it helps in, in, in the sexual process, but it's not absolutely necessary to have a prostate for sexual function. Now, what happens when a, uh, what are the possible outcomes when a person uh, has treatment from prostate cancer? Well, there are two basic things that go, can go wrong. Um, and you, when you read about it in the newspaper or you hear about the word risk, you know, there's this whole controversy over should men be tested, should they not be tested, and we go over that in the book. It's a very complex uh, subject, um, but the idea is um, when it talks about men, should they get, should they go and be tested, what they're, what, and they use the word risk, well, there's no risk in taking a PSA test, which means a little blood test to measure the amount of prostate antigen, specific antigen that's in the blood. That is a simple blood test, and it and it's not um, it's not in itself is not a risk. The risk comes in uh, when first of all the the test is it is a tool. It just indicates that <clears throat> that there's more. Uh, prostate uh, stuff that, let me just say, that gets thrown off in the bloodstream. And it, 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 it doesn't say you have cancer. It just means there's something going on in the prostate that isn't right. Um, now, it could be benign. Uh, one of the things, when the, when, the, when, the prostate, when the PSA number is high, it could be a perfectly benign situation. It could mean that you have an enlarged prostate which is benign and treatable. It could mean that you have prostatitis, <clears throat> which is uh, an infection that can be treated with an antibiotic, very simple, one, two, three. And then um, it could be prostate cancer. Now, who's going to know this? The only person that's going to know this is your doctor. And so, you, so what we always say is you must have a consultation with your doctor if your PSA numbers 
um, are, are high. Even even it's a good idea to have a, a basic uh, talk with your doctor when you get to be around 50, and if you're African American uh, or uh, have a high risk uh, of cancer, African Americans have twice the risk factor of all other uh, members of the population. Um, then you sh you might want to have a basic uh, PSA test when you're about 40. 40 and do they old. know why African American men are more at risk? Is no, they don't know that. They don't know, so no, that's, that's, it's a, that's big a big question. Mystery. We just know the statistics. Right. It could be genetic, but nobody's been, and, and it could be uh, caused by diet, but I don't believe that and they're anywhere near knowing that. Um, the, the latest research seems to be that there's something genetic, but we don't know for sure. So it's really important for, I mean, for African-American men to oh, get tested. They must be tested, and, and they probably, their doctor is probably going to tell them that once they get tested, they should probably be tested yearly. But, but I want to, you said um, there's no risk or to the oh, test, I'm going to say about it's risk. just a blood test, but the risk does come in, the second yeah, part of that. I don't want to skip over that because it would be, you really need to go to the right physician and, a, and one who is skilled in the diagnosis because the risk could be in them making a diagnosis based on a high PSA that maybe uh, could subject you to more risky testing or procedures well, me, that you me, don't let need. Let me clarify that, Catherine. What, what risk really means, it means um, having a biopsy. Now, is that a risk? For some people, it's like a pinch and, and nothing. For other people, it's un, you know it's uncomfortable, but it's not deadly. Uh, what the risk comes in if you get a biopsy? Um, what does what does the next step require? It needs treatment, perhaps, and maybe <clears throat> maybe not. The interesting thing is that eighty percent of the men who get a biopsy are not cancerous, or they have minimal cancer. That's why everybody is screaming. Are uh, are men being overly treated um, because um, they're looking for <clears throat> a test that it, 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 if PSA is a simple blood test, it, it tells you that there's something wrong with the prostate, but it doesn't tell you that it's cancerous. But so right now for, we only have a test. The PSA is an indicator, but we don't have a, you need a test a, for, for, for men. That says something called a marker that definitely says you have cancer. And that would eliminate or certainly cut down on the number of biopsies that men go through. Mm -hmm. That's the risk. The risk is um, if, you, if you have a biopsy, you might go into a treatment. Now, what are the, the two things that could happen <clears throat> uh, to any, what are the outcomes that could go wrong? Any, well, I'm going to say wrong. If you have a surgery or radiation, you can expect that um, you're going to have uh, a, dis a sexual dysfunction at some point, and you can expect that you're going to have a urinary incontinence problem. Now, if you have surgery, um, you're going to have an immediate loss of um, sexual function for up to a uh, year and a half or two years. Some that's people get lucky. Now, I stop you right there. Isn't that going to be, and I, I'm using the word devastating, but it's, sure. I mean, a year uh, to two years. Treatable. 
treatable because there are other ways to manage that where you can have sexual relations. It's just um, it's not a natural erection, but it, it but but they can have an induced erection with medication and other and other uh, things. That so you would use Viagra. You could yeah. depending on your situation. Sure, um, and you're not you're you're not deprived of having sexual relations after. Uh, after surgery. Now, in the case of radiation, that's that's interesting, because in case of radiation, like seeds or external beam therapy, um, you remain um, uh, functional and potent for maybe two or three years, but after that, you can get scarring, and you can lose permanently lose uh, sexual function. So you know, it's like uh, chicken or the egg. Um, but the advantage of, of surgery is that once the uh, once the two year and a half or the two years go by, you can have your sexual uh, function restored permanently. I hope now you're talking about uh, you know the procedures, surgical, um, and you know the potential of cure and what can happen, but now what about the psychological? I mean, it sounds, you know, okay, you know you're know, you saying a year, year and a half, two years maybe, uh, your sexual functioning be restored, but meanwhile, um, you know, the, the... Well, guys do go through crazy, you know. Yeah, feelings of self-esteem, relationship with your wife, I mean, or partner, whomever you're sleeping with, I mean, all of that, it would seem to me that uh, uh, counseling has to be a part of this whole process as well. Well, it could be. It could be. It doesn't necessarily have to be. It really, um, here, here's, there's an order to, to th- that, let's say, at Hopkins and, and most major, most major um, institutions will tell you. Number one, um, get rid of the cancer. Number two, uh, get rid of the, in, uh, the incontinence. Number three, restore potency because... If you, if number one, if you don't get rid of the cancer, uh, the other two aren't going to be anything at all. I mean, <laughs> if you're dead, you're not going to have your, you're not going to be incontinent. You're not. Right. The other problems oh. disappear. <laughs> yes, they have a way of disappearing. Is correct. But anyhow, the answer to your question is uh, psychologically, uh, there are ways that people uh, can have uh, restoration of sexual function. It's it, it's Viagra. There are there are medical devices that take care of that. There are things called penile implants in severe cases uh, to handle uh, ED. Uh, there is a way. Bottom line, there's a way to manage all that stuff, and it can um, quiet the psychological uh, horrors that people think they're going to go through. So in this case, as you're saying, um, information is power. And like reading your book, you'll have the answers to some of these questions that we're bringing up. Obviously, we can't discuss them all. But right. yeah, so, and this stuff is really important. It does empower you if you have the information. And you're less fearful, as you say, because there are choices. It's not, and, and I think that's really important for, uh, for obviously, for anyone who's been diagnosed with, with uh, prostate cancer to have. I mean, you have to have, it gives you, Bring, gives you back so you don't feel as victimized. Right, right. 
There, there are, there, there are. You know, somebody will ask me, "What are the lessons that that, that I learned from my experience?" Uh, I can, I can sort of enumerate them for you. The, fir- the first thing you that you have two minutes to do it. Yeah, I can tell you that. The first thing I would tell you is that it's very important to pick the right doc, right doctor. Um, you, it's it's the skill of the practitioner. Uh, it's not the technique, whether it's uh, an open, like if it's surgery, it's not whether it's an open radical surgery or whether it's laparoscopic and robotic. It's how well the guy or the uh, or the, uh, the female doctor can handle the problem. Uh-huh. Um, that's key. That's number one. Yeah. And uh, the other thing is you've got to go to a hospital that uh, you have to make sure that this, that the doctor has done at least 100 cases like that. And the other thing is that you have to make sure that you're going to a good hospital, not a local hospital. You have to be prepared to travel if you're going to go to state-of-the-art kinds of hospitals. And um, it's important that that you have an act that you arrive at an active role in making your own decision because everybody's decision is different. Everybody's body is different, and you're going to have to have a different decision. You are the only person, uh, the patient who can make the right decision, not your doctor. He can help you, but you, but you, that's where the ball is going to wind up in your own court. Well, I think you know, that's, a, that's a great uh, ending, I think, for, uh, for, our, for, for the interview because uh, very important advice. And I want to also reiterate that the book, Prostate Cancer Survivors Speak Their Minds, uh, you can buy it online. You could buy it at bookstores everywhere. And one other question, uh, I've been talking to Norman Morris today, who's co-authored the book with Arthur Burnett, uh, MD. Uh, is there a website we can go to for more information? There's, there, there sure is. Uh, it is. It's a mouthful. It's okay. www.prostate, this is one, one word, prostate cancer survivors, plural, speak but what you do is survivors and speak uh, share one s so it's like prostate cancer survivors peak it really comes out as prostate cancer survivors speak got uh, it thanks uh, so much for being on the show this morning I, we really appreciate it thanks for having us norman morris thank you you've been listening to katherine zoxham your social worker with a microphone and it's voiceamericavariety.com Uh, Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Uh, Coming up next, we're going to be talking to Nancy Anderson, author of Work with Passion in Midlife and Beyond. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Hi, this is Dr. Vijaya Nair. Together with my dear friend, Dr. Howard Piper, we are hosting our own show called Kiss Your Life Hello. We are two internationally recognized experts, researchers, authors, and health advocates in holistic medicine and counseling. We promise you a fantastic show with interesting guest experts to educate and entertain you with the latest information on mind, body, and spirit wellness. Join us on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. See you there. 
Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. If you've been listening, thanks again for joining us this morning on VoiceAmericaVariety.com. I'm your social worker with a microphone. And coming up uh, in this half hour is Nancy Anderson. Nancy Anderson is author of Work with Passion in Midlife and Beyond, Reach Your Full Potential, which is what we all want to do. And even in midlife, I guess you can begin to do that if you haven't done it before. And make the money you need so you can do both. Follow your passion. Nancy is a, uh, a career and life consultant and author of the pioneering career guide, Work with Passion, How to Do What You Love for a Living. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Nancy. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Catherine. Great to have you. We need to have you to, okay, middle age. Everybody's talking about middle age, what you can do. <laughs> Uh, maybe you've been working at a job, I guess. I have a lot of friends who have been working at jobs that they really don't like, but they've made money and they sent their kids to college, retire, even, and they're retiring, but now they want to do something that's going to be fulfilling and still make money. So hence your book, right? That's true. You know, in my work with clients, I noticed that as they hit that early 40s mark, there's a significant change that takes place in their values, and a lot of them aren't aware that that's what's happening. You know, it's a natural development. It happens to all of us that we just, um, like flowers, you know, flowers open and they bloom and they reach a certain stage, and human beings are the same way. The only difference between us and flowers is that humans can block their development, and then that causes the midlife crisis, meaning they're holding on to an earlier stage of life, earlier values that just don't apply to the second half of life. So what the book does is it addresses that issue and it explains, you know, why is the second half of life different? What is it that happens to us? And why is it that we have this inner longing to find something that is not, you know, as you say, even though we have the money and we can have a lot of possessions and everything, but there's just that hunger. And what that's for is for that emotional fulfillment, you know, to think that our lives have meaning and we made a mark and, you know, not just that we had children, but that we have something that we offered the world. And so the book shows people how to do that. Yeah, I mean, you get very specific, and, and that's what I want to do. Because you talk, you say, examine, help us to in midlife to examine our entire life and to use that examination take, and then specifically take that information and put it into uh, doing something that we're, allows us to follow our passion and be productive. So what do you do? Let's start, like, because you really, I mean, I think I find this very interesting. I mean, you have people actually... Um, write their autobiographies to see where things have worked, where we've gotten stuck, 
Talk to us more about that. Yeah, you know, even before that, though, Catherine, I make I have them declutter their surroundings. <laughs> how okay? How do you in do fact, that? As I've gone on a field trip with clients, you know, because I realize something's going on and I don't know what it is, and so I'll go to their homes and I say, "Oh my God, no wonder you can't find your passion. You can't even find the bathroom in this place." You know, I've got to get rid of all of this stuff. You know, and because stuff indicates the past. You know, it's actually stuff that. Maybe at one time it worked. It's kind of like I'm saying about values, that we don't realize that we don't need a lot of things anymore once we hit the midlife and get older, but still people hang on to it. So before they even write, I ask them to go through their houses and garages and everything, room by room, you know, get rid of everything except what you love and what you use because that first step in really developing something new is to create some empty space. And it's amazing, you know, the psychological uh, confrontation there is when people get into their closets. <laughs> and it's the same thing, you know, when I have them start writing their autobiographies. And that came about because I couldn't figure out why my clients kept coming back to me when I first got started in this business way back in 76. And as a writer, I've been trained to go back two generations in order to understand the main character in a story. So I thought, well... <clears throat> I think I'll have these people write their stories beginning with their grandparents about money and work and, you know, all those issues. Well, the first autobiography I read, I thought, oh, my God, now I know why these people are stuck. So that really started. And I also have them as they're writing to call everybody by their first names so that they get that objectivity and then parents and grandparents become characters in a story like a novel. And that is a tremendous technique for helping people to separate themselves out and see, well, who am I apart from my family and apart from my cultural conditioning? Very fascinating, very daunting uh, exercise, you know. <clears throat> I think it's, you know, your idea about getting rid, first starting with getting rid of all the, I'll say external stuckness. Yeah. Boy, I could. I have several clients for you. <laughs> I, as you're talking, yes. I'm thinking, oh, my God, I've got a list of friends and family who need your help. Maybe yeah. I do, too. But, uh, it, uh, it, uh, I mean, uh, and you really can't go ahead unless you get rid no. of all that old stuff. Yeah. I mean, I have a friend who's bringing old stuff up from the basement to redecorate because she's been saving it over the past 40 years. This yeah. is not a good thing to do. And, you know, <clears throat> in the feng shui business, and I have several clients who do that, they, they talk about clutter holding energy. They call it chi energy, and that it, it's even dust. If there's a lot of dust in a house or a lot of dirt, that they say that it's, it's an indication of the blockage of the energy, that there's no flow in the house, there's no flow in the room. And I think that's very symbolic of the mind, you know, that when we're, we're jammed up with possessions and they're just all over us, um, there's no room for the mind to really think because it's so distracted by the clutter and by the piles of stuff. And as I said, this one man that I was telling you about, I mean, he had piles and piles of stuff on his desk. And I said, what are all those papers? He said, well, those are all my old tax returns. <laughs> oh, how depressing. <laughs> no wonder you're depressed. <laughs> <laughs> So oh, anyway, we started on that. This is somebody who needs a lot of, I mean, a, a lot of help. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the, the writing of the autobiography, though, is the key because uh, there's an outline for how to do that in the book because, as I say, most people aren't writers, and so they don't know how to structure a story and, to you know, what to look for. So I offer them a lot of clues on, okay, if this happened, then you can expect this to happen, that sort of thing, and it's, people find it very helpful. All right, so they find out. It, they write their auto, but they get rid of the external stuff. 
we're kind of bringing them along here, and then they write their autobiographies, Nancy, and then so they get. You talk about like just these subconscious influences that are making us make poor decisions about uh, choices in terms of our work and and uh, you know achieving achieving yeah, our dreams. Yeah. Um, so they you become aware of how they influence you, self-destructive life concepts, right? And then what do you do? Give well, us an example. I always like real-life examples, like the guy who had his tax returns from 20 yeah. years on his desk. I mean, that, that, that's the picture. Give us another picture for this Well, example. I just wanted to tell you, though, the, the irony about what this man wound up doing <clears throat> was going into financial planning. <laughs> <laughs> he was not going to let go. And he, the thing is, though, you see, all of that stuffness and holding on to the tax returns and everything, he had this deep-seated idea that he wasn't good with money, and the truth was just the opposite. But he grew up in a, in a family that was wildly dysfunctional about money. There was a lot of money in the family, a lot of it, but there was a lot of dysfunction around it. So I just could see, you know, through all of the piles that there was something down there that was a very creative way that he could use this. So, you know, after he realized that he was very interested in money, I mean, he was surrounded by the tax returns every day. <laughs> I said, there's a clue there that money is your passion, but... You know, we got to turn it around so it's creative. So, yeah, today he's a financial planner and doing very well, and he does not have stacks of tax returns around. Now, you mentioned the life scripts, and that's really what you find out when you're writing your autobiography. A life script is a story that always ends in failure. Okay, so there are three life scripts. One of them is based on, okay, I can't do what I want um, because if I do what I want, then I'm selfish. And another one is, well, I can't do what I want until everybody else is happy. Now, women have this script particularly. You know, if I can't be happy, if they're not happy. And so if they're succeeding and people around them are not happy, they feel so guilty, they'll turn right around and sabotage their success because now that balances everything out. And then the last script is, well, it's everybody else's fault that I'm not happy. <laughs> so you can I, I I can put people into each one of those categories. Well, and, and you see, if, you, or if you're the kind of a person that you can't be happy unless everybody else is happy, who do you think you're going to marry? You're going to marry the person who expects you to make them happy. <laughs> and, of course, nobody is ever going to be happy because you can't make anybody else happy. So you can understand then that the drain on the creative energy is going into trying to change the world or change people, make everybody happy, and my client can't focus. So what I have to do is say, look, you've got to see that it's not your responsibility that X is not happy. That's their responsibility. But it's just amazing how hard it is to change that script. But when you change the script for one person and you change it for the person who can't be happy unless their partner is happy, and then you help them to be happy no matter what, What ha then does that break up the marriage or the relationship? Not necessarily. It definitely changes though, the way that they relate to people. In other words, um, there are certain key words that they learn to say, which is like, for example, one of my clients' husband was always asking her what to do, and then when she would tell him what to do and then it didn't work, he could blame her. And I said, okay, I know this is going to be very difficult for you, but the next time your husband asks you for help, say, look, you know, I think if you think about that long enough, you can come up with a really great solution to that. And she looked at me. I said, you don't believe what I'm saying, do you? <laughs> <laughs> and she said, no, I don't think he can. I said, well, why do you think this script keeps going? Because you assume he doesn't know how to solve his problems. And, and she said, oh, I get it. <laughs> so I said, all right, so promise me now you're going to say, 
I think if you think about that long enough, you'll come up with a great solution. Well, of course, the first time she said that, her husband got mad at her because, see, she was changing. And every time we the rules change, of the game. people push back. They want us to go back to being, like in her case, the rescuer, the person who fixes everything. Even her kids were like that. Mom, why can't do so-and-so? Those say she rushes in to fix everything. And then everybody accuses her of being too controlling. Isn't there, and there's something in psychology that, that refers to secondary gains, she's getting something out of it, like feeling powerful, feeling like she's in of control, course. feeling like everybody <clears throat> needs her, even though it's self-destructive? Well, yeah, but what she's really getting out of it is being exhausted, and, and, and it's confirming her life script. It's, it's called, what's the use? I'm never going to make it, because she came from an alcoholic family. And that's the alcoholic script, is what's the use? I'm never going to make it. I might as well drink. Um, and so she had that same I, you know, thing. That's what I find in the people's autobiographies. See, I look in the writing. They send it to me. They email it to me, and I'm reading. I'm, I'm you know, make a hard copy, and I'm flipping through it. I say, okay, a couple pages now. I'm going to run into the alcoholic in the family. Because yeah, you already know what's coming so next. Well, you're putting, and putting your, we're going to take a break, but putting, you have to put these autobiographies, put your behavior, the person, that you're uh, in the context of their whole life. We don't yeah. tend to do, you know, people always say I'm starting over, and you're never really starting no. over. It's just an evolutionary process, I guess, right? Right. That's yeah, right. but there's this whole thing, well, I'm in midlife, and I'm going to start over, and I'm going to, but not really. You have to incorporate the past with the present with the future. Anyway, okay, we're going to get back, but Nancy Anderson is author of Work with Passion in Midlife and Beyond. Reach your full potential and make the money you need. We haven't even talked about the money. I'm Catherine Zox, VoiceAmericaVariety.com. Don't go away. Nancy and I will be back in a minute. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent, you face all kinds of challenges. You know you're a good parent, but we have a show that may help you become a better one. It's called the Book of Dad Radio Show, hosted by expert husband and wife team Robert and Ulette Benson. This program will answer your questions about a variety of topics that parents need to stay on top of. It's a roundtable of discussion that's great for the weekend or anytime. Tune in to the Book of Dad Radio Show every Saturday at 12 noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Emotional intelligence has been documented to be the most important skill for a leader to move up in an organization. Leaders Playbook will unpack what emotional intelligence is, why it is important, and how you can raise your emotional intelligence for yourself, your direct reports, and your team. Join Dr. Relly Nadler every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern, to the Leaders Playbook on the Voice America Business Channel. Your success, your success could depend on it. Women in business today face many challenges in advancing their careers and reaching their goals. There are corporate executives, entrepreneurs, and business owners that have made their mark in business. Now you can learn their secrets and tips. Listen to Women Mean Business as your host, Bonnie Marcus, explores how to thrive in the business environment, navigate the workplace, and climb the corporate ladder. Listen live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and effectively promote yourself today. 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to the Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll free number is 866 472 5788. That number again is 866 472 5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. It's the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com this morning. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and I'm with career and life consultant Nancy Anderson, author of Work with Passion in Midlife and Beyond Reach Your Full Potential and Make the Money You Need. And Nancy was saying, in order to read the, your full potential, everyone, you have to read Nancy's book. And we're kind of carrying this theme forward, I guess, that uh, before you can go forward, you kind of have to, or not kind of have to, you have to examine what you've been doing in the past and how that's affected your choices, because it will affect your choices for the future. Yeah. All right, so let's say we've gone through some of the steps in the book, like we, you know, you've gone into people's houses, gotten rid of all the clutter, external stuff, write your biography. Um, and then what do we do next? Autobiography. Well, well, people start practicing making choices at work. The, the two things you find when you write an autobiography is you, you get a really good handle on the choices you made that always end in failure. And while that can make you kind of sick looking at all that, you know, brings up a lot of pain, you also see patterns of when everything turned out right, the, the choices you made that for whatever reason, they worked out well. Now, those choices are the key to the passion because that's when you were following your instincts. You weren't listening to other people and you weren't worried about money. You just were following what you felt you really wanted to do. Like one of my clients who decided to go to college later in life, you know, because she was just raising the kids and too busy and everything. And she said, you know, that she was sure she was making a mistake that day that she went down to the community college to enroll. I mean, it had been years, you know, since she'd been in, in school. And she said she got there. She's writing this. She said, I got there, and the whole parking lot was full. And she said, oh, good. I don't have to go. I can go back home now. And just at that moment, a car backed out right in front of the administration building <laughs> and opened up the spot. I said, well, I think God was saying, I think this is the right direction. <laughs> anyway, she could see... The times in her story when she thought she was making a mistake and she was feeling the most uncomfortable was when she was taking the risks that scared her to death. But it always turned out well because she turned out to be the valedictorian of her class. Even though she said, I was shaking so hard when I was filling out the application form, she said that I just was about ready to faint because of the anxiety that she was going to fail. So you don't want to interpret the times when you're scared as being failure, that probably is when you were closest to your passion because obviously this woman was very, very uh, open to learning and she turned out to be a star student and later on went on to become a teacher. I was going to say teacher or professor. I was waiting for the end of the story. <clears throat> I can do a 180 on that. When I'm anxious or afraid of taking the risk because my family valued education, I get another degree. Ah. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm at, uh, just at the point where something perhaps is going to take off or where it gets pretty risky, but it's very exciting. Uh-huh. I go back to school. I get another master's degree. I get another certificate. I get, yeah. you know, I take the uh-huh. LSATs for law school. I mean, I have, yeah. and because and, <clears throat> I'm very comfortable in an academic situation. Same thing, but turned around. Isn't that interesting? Because, see, that, that tells me what you go to is what's familiar, <clears throat> and that's why change is so difficult. Because what's new is unfamiliar and it's uncomfortable. So our first conclusion is it must be wrong. So if we go back to what we know, 
And of course, we're going to not succeed, really. We're just going to repeat the past, but we're not really getting stretched. We're not really getting pushed. It's like in my profession, when I came into this, I was not going to do this for a living. I was just helping a man get a business started, and then I was going to go on to law school and write about the law, you know, stay all in my head. <laughs> well, hey, the first client that I started working with pushed me back into those dark emotional waters, and I was scared out of my mind. But that's where the growth was for me, Catherine, and that's what passion is. It's going to push you to grow. It's going to make you develop a part of yourself that otherwise you wouldn't develop. And so many people... When they say, I'd like to find my passion, I say, well, part of you doesn't really because it's, it's scary. It's going to push you to become more and a better person. And that's one of the clues that it is your passion because it transforms you as you're doing it. See, and so like my, my client who went to the, to the little community college, see, that was a big, big, big step for her because her, none of her family was educated. She was the only one. And unlike your family, see, where it was a big value in her family, it wasn't. So see, that was bringing up all of that stuff, like, who do I think I am? And she'd always hidden her intelligence, see, because it made her stand out in the family, and nobody wants to be different from their family. So this is a complex issue, finding your passion. It's not just simply look for the latest, hottest career and go put yourself in one. You know, it, 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 you're so right. I mean, this whole book and what you're saying is so on target. At least even I'm thinking about it for me personally because in my family, getting back, you're talking about those things that motivate you. Education is absolutely approved of for men and for women. And women can get all kinds of degrees and PhDs and law degrees, and, but women don't make money. You, that's exactly. And well, that's a script. Uh -huh. See, that that's goes back script. to it's a belief. Or make a lot of money. I, not, well, not, you know, make it's, it. It's a, money, money is something that is, is um, it's a symptom. <clears throat> you know, it's not a cause. Like, for example, the women that I work with, the reason why they don't want to make a lot of money is because of the power that goes with that. They're very uncomfortable with the envy that other people feel toward them. If they, my God, if you've got financial and emotional success, what kind of a category does that put you in? You know, everybody can sympathize with you when you're struggling. And so I have to warn my women clients, you know, to be ready for the envy that comes with success. I mean, even men clients feel this too, you know, because it's a very uncomfortable thing to have this all figured out. And because I can tell, you know, like, for example, when I go to speak to people, I always start by talking about one of my failures because they think I just sprang out of the womb like this, you know, that I never had any struggles, I never had any problems. <laughs> And I have to make it clear, no, it was not e hard. It was not easy for me. So, because if I don't do that, there are people in the audience who are not going to listen to anything I say because they they envying that I have found what it is that I truly love. Uh -huh. so it was easy for you, Nancy, but it's not so easy for me. Yeah, the deal with it, you know, along with envy, also goes a great deal of admiration. You know, there are people who want to to copy you, they'd like to learn from you, and I think you have to be mature enough to handle what goes with success before you go for it. So that's why I go very slowly and very deeply with my client, because I want them, when they get there, to be prepared for what goes with having made it. And that, I talk a, a lot about that in this book, because it's directed to older people, you know, who are really ready to pull it off and have everything that they need. And notice, you know, that I say need, not want. Now, what about when you have, and I always get back to this, you have your client, I kind of alluded to it, I think, in the beginning, 
um, you're working with your client, but the client also comes in the context, uh, I get back to the family situation, because you're helping them to make enormous changes in their life. And how does that impact on their relationships, say, in later life, children, grandchildren, friends, spouses? Because, I mean, by following their passion and becoming successful at it and doing all the kinds of things that you've been talking about, that's other people, like, you know, important people in their lives, not just, you know, acquaintances are going to be really, it's going to be difficult for them to set to. to <clears throat> well, again, that goes back to preparation, and that's why I prepare my clients to step into that role of, of leadership and authority and put on that mantle of power and be comfortable with that. It's like trying on a beautiful suit, you know, that you never would have purchased before because it's just so so absolutely gorgeous that you feel a little uncomfortable and you go back over to the counter, you know, where the things are cheaper. So it's power is like that. And I don't mean power over people. I'm talking about the spiritual power that comes to you when you truly become who you are. And, yes, it does push a lot of buttons. And the family members, as one of my clients said to me last week, I don't know what I'm going to talk to my family about anymore. Because <laughs> <laughs> everybody used to sit around and complain, and he would too. And now that he's found what he wants to do, you know. I said, well, you know, you're just going to have to really winnow out the people in your life that you can talk to and the others you just have to be cordial but distant because they don't want to hear about things working well. So as I said, it does change everybody. All of my clients experience this. They can't believe it. But when it does start to happen, Catherine, they're prepared for it because I've warned them. Yeah, be prepared. And we have to say goodbye. This has been really a a I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot from you. Thank you. Um, work with passion in midlife and beyond. Reach your full potential and make the money you need. Nancy Anderson, you can buy your book online, bookstores everywhere. Um, we'll have to continue this dialogue. If, All right. Uh, Let's see. We only got to Chapter 2, Kathy. Right, we only got to Chapter 2. <laughs> well, okay, you'll come on again and we'll finish. All right. All right. Thanks <laughs> Thank so you. much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. VoiceAmericaVariety.com. Thanks so much for listening to me, Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. Have a great day, and we'll see you next week. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.